This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Makeshift Chambers studio for episode four of The Wigs. I am your host, Jim Minns. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let me present to you Felicity Graham. Good evening, Jim. Good evening, Felicity. Stephen Lawrence. Hey, Jim. Good to be here. Lovely to have you back again. And once again, Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Hi, Jim. Hello. Three of the top, top barristers in Sydney. I'm just gonna throw that out there. That's my. That's my. Um, uh, because I don't know any others, so I'm just. That's my. Uh, that's you, you've passed my bar. I'm so, not from Sydney, though. Oh, sorry. Yes, of course, of course. And um, you know, I'm on Dubbo Council. Sure, have I mentioned that before? <laughs> Shout out to Dubbo Council. I am deputy mayor. Yeah. Deputy mayor. Correct. Oh. Uh, so here we are again, episode four. This is the sixth most downloadable podcast in the news commentary category on Apple in Australia. That's right. So. You know, we're heavy hitters now. Congratulations, everyone. This month, we look at the proposal for mandatory testing of bloodborne diseases of people accused of assaulting frontline workers, such as police and corrective services officers. Topic two is the legal issues posed by the explosion in facial recognition technology. And lastly, we discuss the Julian Assange case and whether the indictment threatens free speech and the right to publish. But let's begin with mandatory blood testing, Stephen. Jim, I think before we commence, um, as your lawyer, don't you have a conflict of interest to declare? I do, thank you, and that's why I pay you the big bucks, Mr Lawrence. Um, I work for the Public Service Association in the communications wing. They obviously have a vested interest in this uh, particular issue, and as such, I will remove myself, excuse myself from the conversations. Here's the door closing. Okay, okay. proceed. Okay, Jim's gone. Phew. So, in October this year, uh, Jody McKay, the leader of the opposition, announced that uh, the Labor Party would introduce a bill into state parliament to uh, provide for a type of law that exists in a number of other Australian jurisdictions but not to date in New South Wales. And in summary, a law to allow persons who are accused of assaulting police or other emergency services personnel, including prison officers, uh, to be mandatorily blood tested after um, allegations of assault or the like and to be blood tested for certain uh, blood-borne diseases, particularly Hep B, Hep C and HIV. So it was something that the Labor Party raised, but the government almost immediately responded and said that they would be introducing a government bill to do it. It's actually been on the agenda for a while. Um, About two years ago, there was a state parliamentary committee into violence against emergency services personnel. And it wasn't sort of looking primarily at this issue, but it made a recommendation almost in passing in its recommendations that the government should consider this kind of law. Then in September 2018, um, an options paper was uh, released by the Justice uh, Department. And we might post that uh, perhaps on the Facebook page when episode four drops. It's an interesting options paper because it doesn't actually talk about why the law is needed, apart from talking about a policy imperative to relieve um, anxiety 
that might be held by people that have been assaulted, who might be worried about having become infected with um, a bloodborne disease. It doesn't otherwise talk about why the laws are needed, what sort of transmission rates we've seen in those circumstances um, or the like. So a bit unsatisfactory, and I wondered when I read it whether... Uh, it might have been tweaked in the minister's office and some of the statistics taken out of it because it doesn't really provide the baseline facts as to why this sort of law might be needed. So as I think I've said, the stated reason for the proposal is that if you're a police officer or the like and you're um, assaulted in a way that leads to the transmission of bodily fluids or a person's bodily fluids um, on your body or potentially... Uh, inside your body, then you will um, understandably be um, highly anxious and concerned that you might have contracted uh, something like Hep B, Hep C or HIV. And Hep B particularly is highly contagious and quite easily transmitted through both saliva and blood. So this proposal was immediately controversial and it came under attack from a range of groups such as the AMA, Australian Medical Association, who said that um, it's unnecessary and indeed um, is going to be counterproductive, uh, but also from various rights groups um, active, for example, on behalf of people with HIV. thought it would be a good topic because it's interesting from a human rights point of view, and I think that's um, in a number of ways. Firstly, it's expressly intended to apply to people who are presumed innocent, and that's because uh, the general application will be to people charged with assault police um, or like offences. Its whole imperative is urgency and speed, uh, that testing is undertaken quickly. Uh, so by necessity, people won't have had their guilt or innocence determined in the criminal court. Um, it will make lawful what would otherwise be an assault, i.e. Um, a forceful blood test. Um, it violates, I think, an incredibly important principle um, of medical ethics, which is informed consent for disease testing. So you will have people that have not elected to be tested for HIV who all of a sudden will be forcibly tested uh, by police um, or like agencies. Um, another criticism is that it's said that the proposal is really based on fear and stigma and has no policy sort of merit to it and won't even achieve what um, it's stated to be achieved. Um, so details are pretty slim so far in terms of what is proposed. There's not, for instance, a draft bill um, or anything like that. But it's certainly clear that it will apply to police and other emergency services personnel, um, including prison guards. It seems to be clear uh, that mandatory testing will be used in circumstances where there has been um, an assault and then... Um, a view is reached that there has been a transmission of bodily fluids, uh, but we don't yet um, have the detail in terms of whether a certain degree of risk um, is going to be needed to be established before the procedure can be done. Um, in terms of the diseases that will be tested, it's not clear, but uh, from the schemes that are operating in other states, definitely Hep B, Hep C and HIV would normally be the three that would be tested for. It's not clear, it's not completely clear who is going to make the orders um, or have the power to make the orders under the scheme. Um, the only information out there in terms of the government proposal is that it will be initially a senior um, officer in the agency of the person who's been assaulted. So, for example, um, in the case of the police, probably a police officer at a certain rank. 
Um, and the government has also indicated in their press release that there will be, I think, a limited appeal right where a person can appeal to the, I think the position is the Chief Health Officer, which is, I think, a statutory position, and they can entertain an appeal uh, within two days. I think probably most importantly in terms of understanding how it's going to operate is understanding when there will be um, a power to make the order. And that is not specified in the press release. And it's a pretty crucial issue from a human rights point of view. And if you look at the various other Australian jurisdictions where it's operating, you see a real variety of practices. Uh, So Western Australia has, I think, a very draconian scheme. Their scheme is basically a senior police officer can make the order. And the senior police officer is empowered to make the order where there has been an allegation um, of a certain offence, so typically um, assault police and where the police officer um, forms the view that there might have been the transmission of bodily fluids, basically. So there is not a requirement. I think this is crucial in understanding the policy balance that that has to be undertaken when one is considering uh, human rights. There is no requirement of a view being formed as to a certain risk in disease transmission. Now, that's really different to the Victorian scheme, which... Uh, is very different um, and not draconian, I think, in its operation. And the Victorian scheme is basically a legislative power that sits um, in public health legislation, creates a power to order testing in a whole range of circumstances. It, for example, applies to nurses, doctors and all sorts of things, including police um, and corrective service officers. But the test um, is one applied by the chief medical officer or delegate, and the test is based on whether they are satisfied that transmission might have occurred. There doesn't need to be any criminal offence committed under the Victorian provisions, so it's purely based on public health concerns and risk issues in relation to the transmission of uh, diseases rather than through this lens of someone who has allegedly committed an offence. Yeah, and the power not being held by a police officer is one completely removed from that quite charged environment of a police officer making a decision very recently after an allegation of a colleague being assaulted. So it's a very different scheme. And look, it's a little bit difficult to find raw numbers on how many orders have made, but in WA there has been hundreds. In Victoria, from the figures I found, there hasn't been any. So in WA, a recent audit of... Australia's mandatory disease testing laws revealed that there were 387 applications for orders since 2015 and 377 were approved. So only 10 were not approved since the implementation of the regime. Yeah, and that's in circumstances where the senior police officer who makes the order is not required by law to be satisfied that there has been a risk of disease transmission. They're only required to be satisfied that there has been an assault um, or like event and a risk of uh, the transfer of bodily fluids, basically. So the Victorian law, I would would suggest, has obviously been crafted in light of the Victorian Human Rights Act and the policymakers have had to look closely at that question um, of justification and when you interfere with a human right, such as when you detain a person for medical testing, that would certainly engage their right to liberty um, and so forth. You need to to point to a policy justification for that and you need to justify that that's an appropriate balance weighing all the circumstances. So the Victorians have come up with a very different law 
and um, it's never been used, and that would seem to strongly suggest that uh, the policy rationale for this law um, is difficult to find um, on many levels. In According to the National Association of People with HIV, there's not been a notification of an HIV transmission in any occupational setting since 2002. Mm. And there's some doubt whether or not the 2002 event was in fact an occupational exposure or not. So 17 years, yeah. at least in terms of HIV, there hasn't been one in Australia. So it's difficult to see how, at least from the Victorian mm. policy perspective, it could ever be justified. Yeah. And that's a huge figure because um, occupational <coughs> transmission um, in those figures includes hospitals and needle stick injuries and so forth. Yeah. So that's an incredibly wide array of circumstances and no examples of transmission of HIV. Another really important thing to bear in mind is that uh, the one disease of the three uh, that are identified which is highly contagious or highly infectious is Hep B. And uh, my understanding is that uh, police are either required or strongly encouraged to get their immunisations before they... Uh, start working as a police officer and also all Australians I think since uh, the late 90s are immunised I think now at birth for Hep B. So the one disease that seems to sort of pose the most risk if you're accepting the logic of the legislation which I don't think we really do um, is probably not going to be an issue for the largest cohort of people because they're all immunised. Uh, because of the nature of their work. So when it's said that this is based on fear and stigma that seems to be a pretty powerful argument to support that. The other thing that really concerned me about what Jodie McKay said, the Labor leader, was she said, if we can give a police officer or others on the front line peace of mind that they are not infected, then I'm all for that. They put themselves in harm's way for us every day. The very least that government can do is give them some certainty over the risk of infection from bloodborne diseases. Well, that policy justification is completely flawed because if you test the person who is said to have assaulted an ambulance officer or a police officer or a corrective services officer and the result comes back that they are positive, for example, for HIV, first of all, that tells you nothing about whether HIV has been transmitted to the police officer, ambulance officer, corrective services officer, and you won't actually know that for about six months until the testing of that person is done. So that means they're under this greater state of anxiety, I would have thought, in relation to whether they've transmitted the disease or not. Secondly, if a negative result is produced from the person who's said to have assaulted the emergency services worker then that might give the person a false sense of certainty that they have not been infected with a disease because, again, it says, tells you nothing about whether you have been infected with that disease. And so this idea that you are going to set up this regime for mandatory testing of other people to give certainty to emergency services workers, it's just a completely flawed premise. It's, and in fact, particularly for someone who has HIV that is being treated for that disease, they will come up as positive in circumstances where medically they cannot transmit the disease. 
So are we just recruiting police and frontline officers who are weak and have poor states of mind? I mean, what's changed? This has been a problem for decades, a potential problem that someone might have transmission of diseases. They have, if if anything, the medical treatments have improved over the years. So why is it now that this is an issue... Is it perhaps that our recruitment is getting bad? We're getting people who can't handle the job and a face can't handle the anxiety? I mean, I accept it must be incredibly frightening, but if there's that much clamour coming from the rank and file, it suggests to me that there might be a recruitment issue and an issue with training because... I I think to be fair, Manny, I think it's more likely to be linked to an increasing awareness of mental health problems and post-traumatic stress disorder and and those issues in, in those particular jobs. Um, and that's something, certainly in the time that I've been a lawyer, you, you just see it through your involvement in cases where you're dealing with the police a lot, that there is a lot more police on certain types of leave, there's a lot more awareness in the police force of stress and trauma. So professional associations and unions, I think, are responding to that by you know, advocating on these sort of issues. I mean, with a proposed solution that is, you know, executive by executive fee at violating the bodily integrity of people with the threat, of, if not the actuality, of force. I mean, is that a fair trade for the anxiety of the people who are there to protect us? I mean, you sign up for a job to protect people. Um, it's an honoured job, as it should be. It's a hard job, as it should be. Um, you can't really balance that out, in my view, by forcing people with the threat and actuality of violence to take needles and then face the reality of perhaps having diseases that they don't want to know about. Yeah, there are also, I think, real resource allocation issues. If you look at, for example, particularly big states where you might have to transport people considerable distances to a place where they can have a sample taken and so on, wouldn't that money be better spent on programs that help to reduce the rate of assaults against emergency services personnel. So the types of environments that you have in hospitals, the types of training that you give to police officers and paramedics to de-escalate situations. I just think that there are better ways of taking steps to protect our emergency Mm. services workers who... 100% deserve to have a safe working environment and do an inherently risky and dangerous job. So there's a real tension there in terms of how you make that workplace safe. Mm. But I don't see the the justification for this and I don't see how it, it achieves this idea of creating greater certainty and less angst and mm. so on. In fact, it's likely to do the contrary because... Mm. Um, if it's negative, you won't know if that's because the window period where it can't be detected in the blood, but it can still transmit is present. Whereas if the test um, is positive, you will have that natural uh, human reaction of assuming the worst and assuming that you have it, when in fact, in respect of HIV, almost certainly it's not being transmitted. Mm. And the same with hep C. So, but you will think the worst, so you, your stress will be increased. Mm. So, the, uh, yeah, the policy logic is very hard to find. So the New South Wales Police Association submission to the parliamentary inquiry that considered the issue of violence against emergency services personnel and 
was the genesis of this recommendation to Parliament to consider legislating in this area included reference to bodily fluid coming into contact with emergency services workers by way of blood from the victim of a violent crime or accident that they're treating, saliva of an offender, police are seeking to arrest, or the unknown contents of a needle puncture. seems to me that most of the legislation, other than Victoria, really looks at this prism or looks at this question through the prism of forcibly testing accused persons. Um, I haven't seen in any of the other legislation reference to, for example, mandatory testing of victims um, or accident victims. Um, Obviously, that would be a possibility under the Victorian regime because that doesn't require any offence to have been committed at all. But the police in their... The police association's position seems to be that they want this mandatory testing to have a really broad scope, including uh, victims. Mm. Is there anything in the government press release that suggests that might be the the breadth of the scope? No. So the government press release seems to focus on... Uh, allegations of criminal assault and the like against police um, or similar uh, categories, uh, emergency services and correctives and so forth. Mm. Um, It's really assault police that I think is going to be highly problematic in this context. Um, So just some figures. So from from April 15 to September 18, there were 915 assault police cases difficult obviously to to know how many of those might have involved spitting um, or incidents where skin has been broken and there's blood flying around but it would be a fair guess to say a fair proportion I think um, of those 900 cases Um, if we have a law that means that um, a person is arrested for assault police they're taken back uh, to the police station a senior police officer at the police station can make an order. They are not in a position, even if the test involves a requirement of being satisfied of a certain degree of risk, they're not experts. They're senior police officers, not doctors or experts um, in disease transmission. So I think we will inevitably see a WA scenario where these orders will be inevitably granted. So you will have people that are presumed innocent being legally assaulted um, and forced to provide their blood. And the thing that really worries me is that of all the offences that are charged in the courts, the ones that I have seen most often dismissed and most often used against people that are innocent is assault police. You just see so many cases where either it's really grey as to who's done the right thing or the wrong thing, or you see all too many cases, it's a minority, certainly, but all too many cases where the police have actually assaulted the person. And where, as a flow-on from that, an assault police charge is laid as a device to to try to avoid any criticism of the police and put the real victim on the back foot because they're now charged criminally and facing court. And if there's people out there who are sceptical of the proposition that police are out there assaulting people... 
more and more we're seeing it on video. And I was involved in a case in the last couple of years where we fortunately had a mobile phone video of the police officer actually in an unprovoked fashion assaulting our client. And we were able to produce that in court. The entire case got thrown out. There was a huge award of costs and then a civil action. So more and more it's coming out because of the availability of videos. And it's a minority of cases, a majority of police do the right thing, etc., etc. But all too many times people are charged with assault police when actually they've been assaulted. Or the charge itself, as you said, Flick, is a device to disguise the fact that they've been assaulted. So then, under this law, uh, we'll see a situation where you'll be assaulted for the second time when your blood is taken in circumstances where there is almost certainly, almost to a degree of certainty, no risk of transmission of anything. And we might see this happening on this industrial scale, hundreds and hundreds of these things occurring. So very, very troubling from a human rights point of view. The intersection with the right to silence also blows my mind in the sense that what they're doing is forcing you in effect to give evidence against yourself. Yeah, the other state schemes have a protection for that. Yeah. Uh, certainly some of them do, where it can't be used in evidence against you. Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. So there's a limited sort of protection in that sense. But a lot of the regimes criminalise failure to comply. Oh, so yeah, yeah. two years jail in South Australia, um a big fine in the Northern Territory. And generally there's a power for police to use reasonable force as well to carry out the procedure. Um, So if they want this blood, they will get this blood, I think is the upshot of it. Mm. And the the other thing is it's obviously a thin end of the wedge, right? There will come a time where a victim needs... The victim is in this situation, it's a sympathetic victim... The police will put it out in the media and say we can't get a blood test for this for, to get this blood for this victim, and the next thing you know, that law will be passed to extend it for victims, and so on. So, just on a positive note, um, the Victorian model is there, and I would certainly hope that our legislators would be looking at the Victorian uh, model. And if we're going to go down this road, that we have a scheme that puts at the heart of it a requirement for a qualified person to make a proper assessment of risk. And I think if that is there, it'll probably be like Victoria and we will see a fancy piece of legislation that is actually never used. Can I come in now? Yes, Jim. Okay, hello, you're done? Yes. Great, we'll be back after this break. Thanks, Wiggs. to the wigs it's great to be back in the room again uh we're going to jump into topic number two the uh the rise or the fear of facial recognition technology is going to you know become a thing of the future i don't understand it the wigs do let's jump in with the wig that knows the most about it felicity graham tell us about facial recognition technology and why it's such a threat jim a person's face carries a lot of information Okay. About the person's age, their gender, their health, their genetic and racial background, even their mood. 
And in combination, especially with other information like where they are, what they're purchasing at a particular time of day, it doesn't take much for surveillance using facial recognition technology to turn into a capacity for mapping a person's entire life in minute detail, their associations, even their thoughts and beliefs, what religion they might practice, um, a whole data set about an individual that um, is of the most personal and sensitive kind. Mm -hmm. And government and private sector collection, use and sharing of biometric information, that is information about people's physical characteristics like fingerprints, like their facial appearance is information that's not just about that person, but it's of that person. It's highly personal information. And it seems that we're in a stage where the technology and the capacity to match people's faces with databases um, of photographs or match photographs to live CCTV footage and other scenarios where this technology is used is developing, this technology is developing at a much faster rate than the regulation to match it. Mm. And so that seems to raise some real questions about this area and the legal consequences of allowing this explosion of this technology and use of it before there is really a regime to regulate its use in an appropriate way. Why does the government care so much about... I mean, I I don't get it. I mean, aren't we eventually going to reach peak population where there's going to be too many faces to map? Who cares? Like, Is it about a reliance on AI? I think you'll always, always be able to map it. And mm. store the data. Mm. I mean, capacity to store data is almost virtually infinite, isn't it? Yeah, but who's going to check it? Who's around to actually... So who's using it? Who, what, and yeah, why do they so, want it? So just to run through a few of them, yes. if you arrive in Australia at an airport and you turn up with your passport, the government will use facial recognition technology to match your face as you present at the customs gate with the photograph that they have on record and with your passport. So it's being used um, in that way as a border control measure and it's also being used in that context to detect people on national criminal watch lists, so people that are being targeted specifically by policing agencies as wanted persons. The technology is being used to identify them. So, Flick, is the reason for that that that's more accurate than the old system of the customs officer just staring at you? Look, I don't um, think that accuracy is necessarily one of the underpinning justifications for using that mode, and it's a bit hard to get data on this issue, but there's been some analysis of the use of facial recognition technology in the United Kingdom where the police have been using it in public spaces to try to monitor people and match them with, for example, suspects or people that they wish to target. And the data set is not very big um, in terms of the numbers that we're talking about. We're talking about in one case sort of hundreds and in another thousands. But the automated facial recognition 
process that the police were using to match faces, 95% of, in quote, matches wrongly identified innocent people. Oh, really? Okay. So... Sounds hardly worth the trouble. (laughs) Indeed. Why are they? But I think the technology is becoming quite advanced Mm. in terms of how it um, operates. I mean, you can see, for example, on your own Facebook profile, Facebook will often suggest to you, do you want to tag Stephen Lawrence in this photo? Because they know that you're friends with Stephen Lawrence, they can see other photographs of Stephen Lawrence and have enough data to be able to detect that that's Stephen Lawrence standing next to you on the steps of the courthouse. Dubbo. At Dubbo. (laughs) Or in Nauru. Oh, yes. Yeah, so that's... Social media is one of the applications or mobile phone devices where, for example, you can access your phone by holding it in front of your face and the phone recognising that it is you and you're the primary user. The other applications um, include quite a controversial program that has been trialled in Victoria recently in schools to mark the role um, of the students in the classroom and under the apparent justification that it's a more efficient way of marking the role and saving the time of teachers so that they can get on with doing the important work of teaching the students. It's also proposed to be used, depending on the jurisdiction, by police to identify targets, for example, using live matching with CCTV footage in public places Mm. and conducting street surveillance to search for missing persons. So you can search a connected sort of network of closed-circuit television across like an entire city or country potentially Mm. and search for one person? Search for one person or plug in a set of people on a watch list. It's born automatically. I've seen that. It's like real-time, yeah, totally. It's also being used um, in Canada to detect problem gamblers. So there's a casino in Ontario that... Well, like Poker Face... Yeah, so (laughs) every person who enters has their face digitally scanned by a camera and the image is then run through a database of more than 15,000 people with gambling problems who have voluntarily put themselves on a banned list. Mm -hmm. And if the computer finds a match, then security are notified. They check whether it is a correct match Mm -hmm. and then ask the person to leave so that they can't then um, participate in gambling. So that's... You know, possibly a more pro social yeah. application of it, yeah. but. Yeah, let's roll out the whole thing. China, China, has, a, China has a pro social application of it. In, mm. in China, CCTV cameras capture unacceptable behaviour and they match your face. And if you've engaged in behaviour that the government deems unacceptable, mm. then you lose social credit points. And pretty soon you might find yourself unable to buy train tickets unable to get on an aeroplane, unable to shop in the stores that you want. It's being used to prosecute jaywalking in China as well. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, social engineering. And, I mean, the big yeah. looming application of it in China is to map the Uyghurs yeah. and commit genocide. 
in or genocidal type acts through these mass re-education camps and yeah it's I mean, China is sort of the future that we, or the doomsday future that we might sit around and speculate about in respect of this technology. Like, we all fear, you know, the development of this technology, and then at some point uh, we no longer have a liberal democratic order, and this incredible technology is in the hands of an authoritarian dictator who uses it to cement their control. Mm -hmm. But that's China, right? I mean, China's got all the technology and they've got a totalitarian state. And they're using it, I I guess, as you would expect a totalitarian state would. Well, until you realise that the Department of Home Affairs wants you to have your face scanned before you watch porn on your mobile phone... Right, that's why that's a proposal put forward by the Department of Home Affairs here, um, and the so new. What's the purpose of that? So to establish that you're over eighteen. Ah, uh, right. Um, but how do you I mean, establish that with a face? Purpose. Well, because they match you against your identity. Oh, okay. They've got records of your right. identity. So the ostensible purpose is to match your age. Of course, they're already tracking all of your metadata. Yeah. So now you know who knows what they can do with that information. It no. seems really quaint that everyone's stressed out about the Australia card in 1986, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> but then there's this identity matching services bill, 2019. That's yeah, I've got to talk about that. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about one other application of this kind of technology before we delve into that legislative regime and the two bills that are in the Australian Parliament. So in shopping centres in Australia and New Zealand, if you happen to go into the Westfield Shopping Centre, then they have throughout um, Australia and New Zealand 1,600 billboards installed which have this special technology in it. It's called a smart screen billboard and what it does is without any consent or knowledge of the shoppers it monitors and records people and uses the data in relation to the demographic of the shoppers and also their facial characteristics which reveal mood to then target advertising specific to the shopping experience of the demographic. Is that as you walk through the shopping centre? Yeah, so apparently they tailor advertisements within seconds because of the facial detection technology, they call it, because it's not matching faces, so it's not facial recognition technology, but it is using the information that you reveal in your face by way of your age and gender and your mood to then analyse that data through um, these other... Whatever crazy algorithm they've built. Exactly. So is there any specific law that governs this or is it just general state and federal privacy law and privacy principles? Yeah. So in Australia, it's um, just the, the privacy legislation, federal and various state and territory. What is that? What rights do ordinary people who don't know where this is going to go, like, what rights do they have? You know, like, if somebody starts looking at me through my phone, um, you know, I have the right to, I don't know, opt out of that or put some tape over my screen or I don't know. Yeah, so, for example, with that shopping centre scenario, in Australia there's no 
ostensible regulation of that and there's no requirement for consent to be given by the shoppers or even their, them to be notified that this is happening. Okay. In Europe, it's a different state of affairs in terms of the regulation and there are pretty strict privacy laws which come under this general data protection regulation that commenced in May 2018. And that regulation gives citizens the right to control their personal data and be informed about how it's used and requires consent. And it seems that consent in that context doesn't just mean buried in the fine print somewhere Mm -hmm. in some lengthy terms and conditions that no one ever reads, but needs to be really clear consent and also this idea that it has to be as easy to withdraw consent as it is to give it. So if you want to opt out, that has to be something that is easily done. And also that there are provisions or a regime that allows people to actually litigate their privacy rights in court. Mm. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Is that the solution to, for the problem if it grows in Australia? Is, can we introduce something like that? Like a privacy bill? Is, can, why, don't we, why don't we bring in a privacy bill, Manny? I mean, sure. Why don't, Let's, why, why don't we have a tort of privacy? That'd be the, mm. that'd be the easiest way to do it. You have the rights to your data as if it were your property. Is it the other way to do it? So um, it's just like another piece of property. You can also have this idea. There's an idea, I think, that comes out of America of people being data fiduciaries. So there's the idea of a fiduciary, someone who owes you a duty if they hold your money. Same thing. Someone who holds your data owes you a duty as if they were holding your money. Interesting. All kinds of ways that you can build in a, a, an underlying framework that would allow the common law to grow to protect people's rights and meet things as they came up. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, law reform in Australia doesn't really like that kind of thing. Why? Who knows? Oh, is, would, is it government protecting the interests of an expanding, uh, you know, economic opportunity yeah I mean maybe so the Australian school situation is perhaps an example of that because the Australian government through the Department of Industry and Science has given a grant under an entrepreneurship type program of about half a million dollars to this company in Melbourne that are developing this facial recognition technology to be used in schools Mm. and it just seems to me that committing to that kind of program in circumstances where there is no legislative framework for that program in terms of regulation of it. And when you're talking about children Mm. having their data mined every day that they turn up to a place of education, having their face scanned and uploaded onto this system for the purpose of efficiency in role marking, it just seems extraordinary to me in terms of it being so disproportionate to the supposed benefit that you're gaining to the risks that are involved in terms of 
the potential for misuse of the data, the potential for the data to be hacked and the potential for mission creep. And, and also, I mean, it was really interesting, This the Victorian State Information Commissioner, Sven Blumel, said, do we want our children to feel like it's normal to be constantly under surveillance? Mm. And I think that there's real merit in that mm. question. Do we want to have an environment where even a school is not a safe space in terms of being able to grow and develop and learn without being surveilled? It's such a new question of privacy, you know, because the old paradigm which the law reflects was your right to privacy in your own home and what's the legitimate scope of activities therein that you can do and your right to be free of surveillance and so forth. But we're, we're virtually at a place now where it's going to be your right not to not for an entity or entities to know where you are at any point and know all of these things about you simply because they can see you and observe you and store that data. So the paradigm's moved from the mm. right to privacy at home mm. to this completely new domain mm. where there's a, should be perhaps a right to privacy in public. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this idea that, you know, even the king needs a warrant to come into your house and that, that those, those walls just can't be breached without some lawful authority. Yeah, when you talk about the technology developing to such a degree that you can't carry out activities in public spaces without that, Fact and all of the data that's inherent in your movement and your expression being mined and collected and shared, it's, it really does shift that notion of what's public and what's private. Well, what about Manny's example of uh, the proposal being brought before, I think it was the Law Reform Commission, where it was they wanted to scan a face before someone watches porno? Yeah. But that person's engaging in a sexual activity, presumably... Isn't that the only situation where that is an that's an invasion of privacy, where you, your government doesn't concern itself with the matters of the bedroom? So it, it is, and to my mind, the reason this is happening is that, firstly, government, that is, say, the executive government, the bureaucracy, they're happy to have more power and more information. That's It suits them to have that. The politicians don't want a tort of privacy or something like that because the politicians use that very information to campaign. I mean, they've got apps now that they can walk up to a house and tell you everything about the political persuasion of a person in a house. So they don't want that. And, of course, big business needs, uses the data to manipulate your mind into buying products. So the only people who suffer are the people. Mm. Yeah. The other thing that really looms in this area is there's this risk of bias and discrimination that is brought about by some of the ways that the algorithms work or don't work. Mm. So there's some pretty clear data that shows that there are flaws in the technology, particularly because they are quite poor at correctly identifying women and even more so poor at correctly identifying women of colour. So that really raises this additional layer and this additional criticism that has been um, brought to bear in this area about the potential for this kind of technology to be unconsciously, let's call it, Mm. used 
in a way that discriminates against particular groups of people and we already have problems, systemic problems of discrimination and racial biases and problems that pervade our society and even policing and Mm. adding a technology where the computer is going to give the wrong answer more of the time based on these qualities. It's really a a concern. Especially if the technology is governing, you know, access to to property or places, you know, the, the provision of services the way that the state interacts with you, policing. Mm. If there's biases and failings in there, there's a whole range of almost inconceivable uh, ways that that could affect people adversely. Yeah. So we should talk about these two bills that are before the Australian Parliament. One is the Identity Matching Services Bill 2018, which went before the Parliament um, last time but um, wasn't debated before it dissolved and has come back again in its same form. And then the Australian Passports Amendment, in brackets, Identity Matching Services Bill 2018, again introduced in the last session of Parliament but not yet debated. These bills come out of a October 2017 Council of Australian Governments meeting where there was an intergovernmental agreement on identity matching services made by the state, territories and federal government, which provides for sharing and matching of identity information to, quote, prevent identity crime, support law enforcement, uphold national security, promote road safety, enhance community safety and improve service delivery. So that's the sort of overarching justification for this raft of legislation that's being proposed. Oh, sorry, service delivery, like... like like licensing and that sort of one of these things is not like the other right right it's crazy the 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 explanatory memorandum said in part using facial biometrics can make government and private sector services more accessible and convenient to citizens yeah and turn the citizen into the commodity i mean i'd rather tap my watch (laughs) so one of the key um justifications for this type of legislation which um, is going to provide a framework for the states and territories and the Commonwealth to share information that is identification information about people through this hub which is called the Identity and Biometric Capability or for short the Capability with a capital C um, and The Capability Yeah the yeah. Capability Sounds like the sort of monstrous machine that will control us all Yeah So the one of the, the justifications is to help protect Australians from identity crime and also is built on this notion that identity crime is this precursor or facilitator for other crimes of a more serious kind or organised crime of various different types. And, I mean, we can discuss sort of that as an issue, but it just occurred to me when looking at all of this that 
collecting huge databases of personal information that is identity information and then sharing it across a whole bunch of jurisdictions and allowing it to be used for all these different purposes and opening it up to be shared with private sector entities that are signed onto the system just to me suggests that there's going to be a lot more vulnerability in terms of identity crime and you're potentially creating more of a problem rather than addressing it because you're creating this increased online use and storage of this personal information that is then just vulnerable to misuse. So hacking and that sort of... Yeah. Seems to me that... Yeah. It's a bit self-defeating. Yeah. There's no structure in the Act for correcting your information either. Mm. Hey, I keep getting... There's, there's no... There's no one... I mean, there may be some administrative input in place, but the Act doesn't provide for an individual to go to the government and say, look, I keep getting matched as the wrong person. Mm. It's not me. Fits your bloody database. Yeah. Or even more fundamentally, um, I want to be taken off. Yeah. I want all my data not on the capabilities. Well, what right do you have to ask that? Well, it doesn't sound like you do under this uh, draft bill, but... Short of not having a licence or having ever had your photo taken by a government agency... Okay, so silver lining. This is the most depressing topic that's... Well, silver lining is this, I think. Yes. A silver lining. The operation of this regime is dependent on each state and territory setting up an actual legislative regime for the collection and sharing of this data... For it actually to work, it involves each of the states and territories doing um, that. And the ACT, that has a Human Rights Act, the Australian Capital Territory, has said, look, our participation in this regime is subject to limitations. Um, It's subject to our participation being consistent with our Human Rights Act and we're not going to participate in certain parts of the regime that we think don't meet Mm. those human rights principles. So I think silver lining is that each of the jurisdictions do still have the capacity in legislating their individual schemes to have regard to human rights principles and legislate accordingly and... I think this just also underscores something that's come up in previous discussions that we've had that we really need um, a federal human rights act in this country so that there is some proper um, analysis through that prism of human rights when we're legislating. I think part of the problem is here there's heaps of silver linings. So every single proposal, whether it's to scan the face before you log on to the porn site or whatever... They all have a positive. They all have a policy objective that a branch of government can convince uh, the cabinet or whatever of the merits of. But I really fear that no one is taking a step back and saying, what are we creating here in an overall and incremental sense? Mm. And how is it going to be misused or fail down the track? Yeah, yeah. And we just seem to be hurtling down this path that is driven by um, all of the economic... Yeah. Um, objectives and all of the law enforcement objectives, yeah. and they all have merit. There's a lot of silver linings, but what overall are we doing? I think it's 
it's a frightening future in a lot of ways. Then, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings yeah, for themselves. That's right, that's right. The first act that we made humans made if you're into that kind of thing against power was the bride of privacy and we're giving it away and I look I don't see any silver linings the way I read this bill um, preventing crime it can be used for preventing crime so now we're moving into that Chinese type of regime Um, it's on my reading we won't have to wait long until Woolworths puts up a sign say that says it's a condition of your entry that we ID scan you Mm. And your mobile phone provider, Google, who sells your Android phone, says, well, we, do, we need to be sure that it's you, so we're going to identity scan you before you can touch your phone. All right. And we'll probably all go along with it. Well, we will. I'm terrified. Um, I, I, can I just propose a silver lining? I think once um, Canberra start ID scanning people who enter brothels, I think you'll see some of this legislation fall by the wayside. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Wigs. We're going to topic number three, the home stretch. We're rounding it up. Uh, this one's uh, thrown at Emmanuel Kirkusharian, and it has to do with, um, I think he's an Australian citizen, last time I checked, Mr. Julian Assange. What's the latest on Julian Assange, Emmanuel Kirkusharian? Well, uh, uh, yeah, it's hard to know where to begin with Mr. Assange. Um, he's in Belmarsh Prison. In at, London, right? In England, yeah. Um, he's in solitary confinement. He continues to be effectively tortured, and that's not my view. That's the view of the UN Special Rapporteur, ra- Rapporteur, Rapporteur, <laughs> Rapporteur on torture. He's probably a good rapporteur. <laughs> yes, he may well be um, on torture. Uh, he was kicked out of the em- of the Ecuador embassy uh, and arrested and sent to jail, imprisoned merely for breaching his bail for I'm not quite sure how long it was but it was an outrageous period of time a couple of years or more than a year for an offence that would ordinarily carry a fine or some small other penalty Um, so completely disproportionate to the crime and the Swedish charges have been dropped against him there's no the only thing that's left against him are some allegations arising out of his publication or acquisition of material that he published uh, that belonged to the United States, and what was it? The key thing that that the key thing that he published, I think, is important to note, is a video of an American helicopter flying around Iraq. And if you haven't seen it, I urge you to go and watch it, although it's pretty troubling. And they're sitting there and they're shooting innocent people, effectively for sport, out of a helicopter, mm. um, including two Iraqi journalists were shot dead. It's called collateral murder. Collateral murder, yeah. yeah. It's definitely worth looking um, looking at. And so he published that. He got it from uh, Chelsea Manning, um, and the, it was top secret or it was secret, and so it, the provision of that information from Manning to him was a crime for which Manning was jailed for. Uh, Assange published it as a publisher, uh, and there effectively is an allegation that he... Assisted, and if you if you read the press, it's it's often put out as well. He was assisting and encouraging Manning to do this. He was certainly encouraging him to do it, uh, her to do it. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Journalists encourage sources all the time. The thing about him 
uh, assisting, hacking, and so on, if you actually go and read the current indictment, is a bit of a furphy because he offered to assist. The material for the hacking, the hash of the passwords, part of that was passed to him, but nothing actually came of it. So all he's really done is the act of a publisher, something the New York Times might do every day, uh, and there are currently extradition proceedings going on in the UK to extradite him to America. Those proceedings were set down for February of next year, I think, February or March of next year. Uh, his, that is, Assange's lawyers, asked for more time to prepare. They were summarily and quite crudely dismissed by the presiding judge, uh, and he, at that hearing apparently looking quite feebly, sort of said something like, this is a superpower who's had decades to prepare their case against me. Can I just have a few more months? I mean, I'm paraphrasing mm. here. And the judge just shut him down. Mm. Um, it's an appalling state of affairs. And the Australian government continues to do nothing. Nicola Roxon, I think, was the first person to wash her hands of him. It continues now under ScoMo. Um, that's the Australian Prime Minister. And... Really, there's it's the current reports are that he's doing very, very badly. They're worried about him dying. His health is is exceptionally bad. Um, and before we move into the into the sort of legalities of it and the and the indictment, the only other thing I want to touch on is is just something that shows you just how bad the level of discourse is about Assange in our country. Um, no less than Pamela Anderson approached our prime minister to ask him to effectively help Assange. And Scott Morrison has asked, the Prime Minister has asked on radio, and he says, you know, should, should he help? He says, no, well, no, first of all, but next, I've had plenty of mates who've asked me if they can be my special envoy to sort these issues out with Pamela Anderson. Uh-huh. Hilarious. That's the state of discourse about one of our citizens who's being tortured in a foreign country. And she consistently... I mean, she was on Baywatch a long time ago or whatever. Yeah. But well, she's consistently been yeah. an intelligent advocate for him, yeah. including writing op-eds and doing yeah. all sorts of yeah. things. And the best ScoMo thing. can do is trivialise her because, what, her breasts are big and she's an attractive woman? Yes. Yeah. I mean, really and truly. Yeah. I mean, having said that, both sides are horrible on this yeah. and, you know... Uh, but that's just an example of the level of discourse, and it's horrid. It's so ironic, this this whole development, because Assange made himself, in a sense, an ally of Trump during the 2016 campaign. Mm. He obviously contributed uh, to the defeat of Clinton through the leaking of the hacked emails. Yet it was the Obama administration, apparently, who made a decision not to prosecute him for the leaks. Mm. And they formed the view that there was such a tension with the First Amendment, which is the American protection of free speech in the Constitution, that they couldn't uh, prosecute him for complicity in breaches of the Espionage Act without sort of unacceptably trampling on the First Amendment, which protects the right to publish. And there's, there's a real tension there. But... And so this incredible irony where um, he gets what he wanted in terms of uh, the defeat of Hillary Clinton, who he characterised um, as a warmonger and so forth. And but praises WikiLeaks constantly throughout that period yeah, of Trump, time. Well, yeah, yeah. Certainly was. Standing up at rallies saying, I love WikiLeaks. Anyway, he got what he wanted and now he's facing a 17-count um, indictment for uh, the publishing of everything from... Uh, collateral murder through to uh, to the cables that were hacked, the 
So these, this indictment was just written up, is that right? It's been working its way oh, okay. through a grand jury process. Okay. And Assange consistently, in the way that he fought the Swedish allegations and extradition, said the Americans want to extradite me for publishing this stuff. Mm-hmm. And everyone scoffed at him, including in Australia, and said he was paranoid and he's a conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as soon as he's out of the Ecuadorian embassy, um, mm-hmm. an American indictment is unsealed yeah. and they're seeking his extradition for his work as a publisher. So his charges under the current indictment, which was disclosed in May this year, are conspiracy to receive national defence information, obtaining national defence information, and there are a number of counts of that, disclosure of national defence information, a number of counts of that, and conspiracy to commit computer intrusion, which is the attempt to hack into the... I shouldn't use the word hack, attempt to use a different username and passcode to get into the same database that Chelsea Manning already could get into so as to cover um, her tracks, so to speak, so as to try to maintain her anonymity as a source. So not not a true hacking type offence, which which has been some of the inaccuracy in the reporting that it's been reported as if it was a hacking, but it wasn't a Mm. true hacking in the sense of getting access to information that Chelsea Manning didn't already have access to. Because one of the criticisms of Assange has been that the leaks or the data releases included information that, for example, named certain individuals in circumstances where that might have compromised those people's safety or even lives. And that's part of the controversy about whether he's a journalist or not, which obviously is a sort of point of criticism of him and his methods, but I think has a probably or potentially a fundamental importance to the First Amendment question because it's recognised that the First Amendment protects the right to publish Mm. and it's obviously an inextricable part of that that journalists therefore have a right to seek information and talk to sources and so forth and publish, most importantly. So he's obviously engaged in many activities that are the activities of a journalist or a publisher. So people who seek to discredit him, I think, have particularly relied upon uh, this allegation of hacking um, or so forth, which obviously is not a journalist-like activity, uh, but more broadly have said, well, he's not a journalist who should enjoy First Amendment protection because in respect of the cables he just published them on the internet in a way that no responsible journalist would. Mm. So they're seeking to characterise him as not being a journalist, I think as part of the argument to say that he's not entitled to First Amendment protection. That would seem to be contrary to the way the jurisprudence has developed in the United States, though, because there's a quite old case, a 1938 case of Lovell and the city of Griffin, which concerned the publication of some religious kind of pamphlets or something um, and an ordinance seeking to... Um, prohibit that. And in that case, the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Hughes, defined the press as, quote, every sort of publication which affords a vehicle of information and opinion. Mm. So... And so it should be. Indeed. Speech is speech, right? Mm. I mean, like, who cares? The method. There's an interesting question as to whether or not the First Amendment extends beyond the act of speaking. So there's some law that says that the courts won't injunct won't stop you from publishing the information. The prior restraint. The prior restraint law. So they, they won't stop you. If you've got secret information, 
you're you're a member of the press, you're an individual for that matter, you want to publish it, fine, go ahead and publish it. The next question, are you then guilty of the crime, remains untested. And in part because governments have been reluctant to prosecute because you can imagine prosecute prosecuting the New York Times. Prosecuting Assange is a lot easier than that. Right, right. The Department of Justice under Obama, they called it the New York Times problem. Mm-hmm. That was the reason why they decided that they could not prosecute Assange because if they were going to prosecute Assange, they'd have to prosecute the New York Times, the Guardian, the Washington Post, you know, all these... The reprints. Yeah. Yeah. And other um, journalists, like, for example, the journalist that worked with Edward Snowden, and they they legally drew this distinction between leakers and publishers, and they, as a policy, prosecuted leakers like or sought to prosecute leakers like Edward Snowden, like Chelsea Manning, but drew a really careful distinction between those who leak sensitive or... Uh, classified government information and those who publish it who are acting in that journalistic Mm. way, which is part of their obligation is to bring the truth out into the light Mm. and seek this information. And you talked, Stephen, about how, you know, it's not this hacking-type conduct is not journalistic, but there's been quite a lot of analysis about how what, Assange was doing in terms of assisting Chelsea Manning to access the data through um, a different account so as to um, not be detected. It's no different to rendezvousing in a dark street with a source. It was. It was journalistic in terms of trying to maintain the anonymity of your source, protect the identity of your source. And I was looking at the ABC website today because there's been a lot of analysis about this this particular issue and what steps journalists actually do take to encourage sources to use particular modes of communication or whatever. And the ABC website has this page called Confidential Tips, which says if you're sharing sensitive mm. information, please take the time to examine the best way of contacting the ABC. Which is a way of encouraging people because Indeed. it's and a then, way of yeah. saying to people, if, you, if you're scared of being caught which often will be because there might be a possibility of criminal sanction, we can in different ways guarantee your anonymity. I mean, that induces and encourages... They have links to all these different apps like Signal and SecureDrop and ProtonMail and all these portals or mechanisms for receiving leaks, effectively, or receiving sensitive classified information, secret information... I was going to ask a question, uh, which I've since solved, but by, thanks to Google. So you wigs are kind of useless in this one, so apologies for that. But I was going to say, if President Obama uh, pardoned the sentence of Chelsea Manning, does that bring any weight to the fact that there shouldn't be any, uh, you know, crimes thrown at Assange? So that's not strictly correct. He didn't. She didn't receive a pardon. She got a commutation yeah, yeah. of the remainder of the sentence. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is... So the wigs are useful. They are. They are well, the wigs are useful as in confirming what Google... Well, there you go. So what's quite interesting about that is that she was then subpoenaed to give evidence in relation to the ongoing Assange investigation, mm-hmm. refused to comply with that subpoena, refused to give evidence in court about it, and she's back in jail. Right. Yeah. They banged her up for contempt. Of course, as you would. Mm. I mean, it's there on paper, yeah. 
Wow, that's frightening. So what's scary to me as well, and this goes back to something that we talked about, I think, in episode one or two, is we have exactly the same issue here, which is we have even more far-reaching and draconian secrecy provisions um, in our federal law that, um, that prevent public servants essentially talking about their work at all almost. We have journalists obviously interacting with them on a daily basis and getting information from them. In terms of the criminal law, if you procure counsel, um, induce or whatever, you can be guilty of a criminal offence. So we have journalists, I would have thought, um, in risk of criminal liability, and we talked in that episode about uh, the raids on the AFP mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but what we don't have is a First Amendment-type mm-hmm. protection that at some point when it's tested will draw a line uh, between normal criminal liability for inducing a source to give information or aiding and abetting mm-hmm. a source in giving information um, on one hand, and on the other hand... Uh, this constitutional protection um, of the right to publish that in some cases will absolve liability. Uh, but we don't have that. So we're, we're a very big st- step behind the Americans. Assange himself, I mean, is, uh, uh, is he the, uh, the devil or is he just a regular Joe Blow? I don't no, know. Look, I agree with Hillary Clinton who reportedly said, why can't we just drone him? I mean, why don't we just get rid of him? Why do we have to put up with these people? who are publishing things about the government killing innocent people. Why should, why should we allow that to happen? Right. You hear all this demonisation, you know, the idea that he published the names of people that put them at risk. What's the other side of that equation? He published the names of people. How many lives did he save by stopping the innocent people being killed? How many lives did he save in that? How many lives has he improved by letting these things come out? Mm. Right? The demonisation of him for publishing Hillary Clinton's emails, or the, the, the Hillary Clinton's... On the one hand, fine. He, he, he's publishing something that is notionally secret and private. On the other hand, he's giving insight into what's going on in the back rooms of power. Is that a bad thing? Why, prima facie, it's not a bad thing. There's the whole sexual assault allegation that came out of uh, Sweden. Yes. Um, It's interesting to note that in August 2010 he was there. He was questioned. He was questioned shortly after the allegations were made and the case was closed and he was allowed to leave. Right. Right? And then in November 2010, when he's in London... A new prosecutor takes over, and this is, gives rise to this so-called conspiracy theory that the Americans were after him. Mm. New prosecutor takes over. She says she wants to question him. Mm-hmm. He says, well, look, why don't you just come and question me here or we'll do it over video link? And she says, no, you know, well, we're going to issue a warrant. Right. Anyway, eventually, so he goes, he hides, there's an extradition proceeding, he goes and hides in the embassy. They then agree, the Swedish prosecutor agrees to come to, come to London to question him. Mm-hmm. And the Crown Prosecution Service in London stops it. There's this whole thing that's gone on to continually delegitimise him. Now, I don't know what it... And just recently, I think a week or so ago, the Swedish prosecutor said there's insufficient evidence to prosecute, so that... They dropped that, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's completely over. No, no, insufficient evidence. I thought it one was the insufficient them, evidence. One of them is within time. At least one of them's within time, and there's insufficient evidence. He, he must know who, who was the gunman on the grassy knoll or something, and he's just sitting on it. What has he got? Why, why, why the effort? Is it, is, have they demonised him so much that, oh, we've got to get... You can't tell truth to power. 
Right. There are limits to what you can do in a civilised world, and he breached those limits. Right, now, right. whether or not we agree with where those limits should be, I don't know, but there's been efforts to prosecute and vilify people who've stood up against war and evil yeah. from governments forever. Yeah, I, think he, I think he brought together a very scary skill set scary to government yes like he brought this sort of because he was a hacker he was a very successful hacker Mm. so he had all the technological skills he's got this sort of driving um, ideology about opposing concentration of power and supporting the opposing secrecy supporting the diffusion of information that is very threatening to state power yeah and I guess even though his personality is maligned and so forth, he had a sort of messiah-like charisma where he drew together a large group of people, smart, committed people, and he set up this organisation that in an unprecedented way was able to get access to government information. I mean, the diplomatic cable leak was extraordinary. Mm. And there is now an encyclopaedia on the internet where you can log on to half a million diplomatic cables and it's basically the history of the Western world for the last half a century mm-hmm. or the last however many years. Yeah. It's this incredible thing. I've spent hours going through it. It's well, absolutely fascinating and gives okay. people insights into the yeah. operation of the US government yeah. that would never have been available but before. Stephen, that tells you that there were people on the inside who, who felt that there was a need for this type of service also. So isn't that interesting? Mm. It's not, you know, the, inside the executive, there were people who thought, hey, there's merit in what this guy's doing. Let's feed him that Anonymously. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea Manning was a pretty low-level military uh, person that had a security clearance, I think, that half a million people had or a million people had. Um, Yeah, but was able to do this almost world-changing act that she's now paying for Mm -hmm. in a very big way. Frightening stuff, frightening stuff. Uh, silver lining to this one. <laughs> Assange's hair is silver. Okay, <laughs> it's your lining. There's your lining. Uh, we'll be right back after the break. Okay, welcome back to the wigs. We're going to wrap it up. We're going to talk about not fun things, but things that we enjoy. <laughs> We're taking away with you. Felicity Graham. Well, it's that time of year, Jim. Uh, so your awesome thing is your mean fennel pickle. Mean fennel pickle. And you'll be doing that as Christmas gifts, and they were surprise Christmas gifts. To people you like or you don't like? People I love. Are we going to be getting jars on the on the wigs table? We should do a mean fennel pickle giveaway, although I can't be bothered mailing it to whoever it is who wins. So, what do they have to do to win the prize? Yes, they have. All right, that's a really good question, actually. Send in your pickles. <laughs> no, no, don't send in your pickles. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! We love you, listeners. We just don't have the time for it. Stephen Lawrence, what's your awesome thing in the next couple of weeks? Um, look, I'll just continue to live the life that I've been living all year, which involves not doing. All that much that's fun. Okay. Uh, not doing much that's wholesome, like cooking or fennel uh, pickle making. Um, I've just got a crushing end to the year, to be honest. Just, just court appearance after court appearance, and 
Um, our local government responsibilities. Oh, yeah, you're the oh, deputy mayor of Dubbo. I, yeah. I went to a citizenship ceremony oh, in yes. the last two weeks, which was, was yeah, beautiful and enjoyable. Nice. Mm. Were you the acting mayor in that scenario? I wasn't, oh, no. Okay. I did help to hand out the bags to people, though. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah with the presents in them, yeah, which included Vegemite. That's a high honour. Yeah, but they were assured by the mayor that Vegemite is not compulsory. Oh, God, the said that. Thank God. And, you know, thank God we're getting some of this Dubbo stuff into the podcast. I think it's important. It really is. Assange and Dubbo, it's like first and second. Emmanuel Kirkasharian, please tell us, what's your awesome thing that's coming up? Well, I've, got a, I've got a trial next week for about a week or two. And then, and then no, no, then I've blocked out, do better than that. I've blocked out a week of my diary. Whoa. And I'm doing nothing. Love it. Right? I'm just, I'm going to go bike riding. I'm going to go swimming. I'm going to do yoga. I'm going to get massages. Is that a real bike, mate, or a partly automated? It's it's an electric bike. It's an e-bike. But it's just, and I've just, I don't think I've done this in 10 years. I'm just going to do nothing. I'm not going to go away. I'm not going to. For one week. For one week. I'm just going to focus on being healthy and living well. For a week. week. It's going to be life-changing, mate. (laughs) And I'll do it again in 10 more years. (laughs) Once a decade. You're going to be a new man. Seriously. One whole week. Well done, mate. I know, five days. It's a working week. (laughs) What about you, Jim? Well, look, 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 guys, I appreciate you throwing me in the the midst. Um, Just studying, actually. Uh, I'd just like to keep that to myself. Thank you very much. Uh, Well, you know, that's involved. Definitely not local government. I'm, I'm 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 doing law at the moment, rather coincidentally. Uh, was that happened prior to my association with the Whigs? The Whigs are certainly helping out, uh, whether or not you would would um, believe that or not. Get out now, Jim. Yes, I know. I know your thoughts on it, Emmanuel. But uh, yes, uh, I'm actually finding it really interesting. Um, but although I did drop to my lecturer the other day that uh, about the show, and um, I was pleasantly surprised that he uh, actually unpleasantly surprised that he did not give a shit that I was associated with this show at all. So there you go. No extra marks for me. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. This has been The Wigs, Episode 4. It has been our pleasure to broadcast into your ears. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast is brought to you by Minimum Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.